books. Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments from North American and European trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip. Scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me. Directly, anyways. This episode marks the two-year anniversary of One from the Vaults. Over the past two years, OFTV has covered a broad range of stories about people living cross-gender lives in North America and Europe from the 1740s to the present day. I'm so grateful to all of our listeners for their continued support. In the coming year, I'll be launching a new website for OFTV, finally getting better equipment, and putting together a few new surprises along the way. The story I've selected for our two-year anniversary show hones in on several of the recurrent themes you may have picked up on from previous episodes. Sensational media coverage, the often unreliable self-narratives of early trans people, and the intertwining constructions of race and gender. It is a story not just about the normative lives trans people attempted to live under the radar in the early 20th century, but also about the lengths racism forced some people of color to go in order to find employment and some measure of social mobility. So join us for the story of a respectable Milwaukee man, his marriage, a disguised heritage, the eugenics movement, and the ill-fated affair that brought it all crashing down. The spring of 1914 saw newspapers across the United States covering President Woodrow Wilson's strained relationship to Mexico, which was in the midst of the Mexican Revolution. Following a minor incident of what the Americans perceived as disrespect, U.S. forces started what would become a six-month occupation of Veracruz. And back on U.S. soil, the growing movement of eugenics continued to make powerful strides in public policy. As this will become important to our story later, let me give you a brief overview on the eugenics movement. The main idea behind eugenics is that humanity has become a polluted gene pool, resulting in crime, poverty, insanity, and other human defects, from cleft palates to homosexuality to any non-white race, which eugenicists believe negatively contribute to society. By preventing people believed to have so-called bad genes from reproducing, the white human population would be purified, becoming stronger again. Sound familiar? This ideology eventually reached its zenith in the Nazi party with their final solution, an association that ultimately resulted in eugenics losing popularity. But long before the Nazi party put eugenics in a horrifying light, many middle and upper class Americans believed that it held the key to solving America's problems, not least of which being its race problem. 
Whites were in a crisis following emancipation. No longer the masters of enslaved African Americans, whites felt overwhelmed by the possibility of having to treat blacks as people and fearful that retribution might descend upon them at any moment. They were desperate for a solution to keep the vote out of the hands of African Americans and to entirely get rid of black people whose communities had quickly become the locus for all white anxieties at the time, from crime and poverty to moral inequity, just as they remain today. Though an explicitly racist movement, at its height, eugenics even counted among its proponents prominent African-American intellectuals such as W.E.B. Du Bois, as well as most of the early suffragettes. Women's right to vote was argued on the grounds that it would help keep the vote out of the hands of African-Americans and shore up power in the hands of white, middle, and upper classes. Suffragette and Mississippi State Senator Belle Kearney, who is remembered for the phrase equal pay for equal work, was also quoted as saying, quote, the enfranchisement of women would ensure immediate and durable white supremacy honestly attained, for upon unquestioned authority, it is stated that in every southern state but one, there are more educated women than all the illiterate voters, white and black, native and foreign, combined. We're clearly soldiers in petty coats and dauntless crusaders for women's votes. Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group they're rather stupid. Mrs. Banks cast off the shackles of yesterday, shoulder to shoulder into the fray. Our daughters' daughters will adore us, and they'll sing in grateful chorus. Well done, Sister Suffragette. Be that as it may, I do not wish to offend. The tense relations between the U.S. and Mexico and the ascendancy of the eugenics movement in American politics form the backdrop of our story. In that spring of 1914, newspapers were swept up in mocking hysteria when a respectable Milwaukee resident was arrested. His crime? It wasn't marrying two women at the same time, though he had. It was being caught living a cross-gender life. Ralph Kerwinio, or Ralph Kerwinny, or Cora Anderson, was born on April 6, 1876, in Kendall Vale, Indiana. He was mixed race, with a father who was African American. His mother's heritage is a subject of some dispute, as we will discuss later. In the 1870 census, the six members of the Anderson clan were listed as mulatto, but by the 1880 census, they had become black. This speaks to evolving definitions of racial categories, differences in individual census takers' racial assumptions, and also perhaps strategic identification changes on the part of the Anderson family, something we will return to later. By 1904, Anderson appears in the Chicago City Directory living with Mamie White at 2714 Wabush Avenue in Chicago. Both were working at the time as nurses, a slightly unusual but not unheard of profession for two ostensibly black or mixed-race women at the turn of the 20th century. 
It is around this time that Ralph began living as a man. Exactly what spurred this on is hard to say, given that our only traces of his life are through newspaper accounts, which may or may not have had any relationship to the facts of his life. The Milwaukee Sentinel's coverage of his case states that, quote, she said it was for the purpose of leading a clean life and to better herself financially. But Ralph didn't just become a man. He also began a very public relationship with Mamie White. The two moved to Milwaukee by 1906, where he and Mamie presented themselves as a respectable husband and wife, with Ralph working initially as a teacher. Attesting to just how respectable they were, one of his neighbors, Joseph Troud, later told The Evening Wisconsin in May 1914, quote, After having seen the husband help his wife across a muddy street, my mother said to me, how nice he is to his wife. Here is where things get particularly intriguing. Not only had the move from Chicago to Milwaukee transformed Cora Anderson into Ralph Cruinio, as well as Ralph and Mamie into husband and wife, it had also changed their race. Ralph began presenting himself as South American, Bolivian specifically, and as being of Spanish ancestry. He even went so far as to occasionally use the name Ralph Farrow for himself. Academic Emily Skidmore writes in her brilliant new book, True Sex, The Lives of Trans Men at the Turn of the 20th Century, that this change in racial self-description was strategic. In the 1900s, Milwaukee had a significantly smaller population of African Americans than most other American cities at the time, and, as in the rest of the United States, to be African American was to be at the lowest rung of the racial ladder. Black men were largely employed as domestic servants in that period, with few other avenues of employment open to them. It is clear that Ralph did not want to fall into the trap of low-paid servitude. By presenting himself as an immigrant of Spanish descent, he was able to secure a well-placed position as a clerk at the Cutler Hammer Manufacturing Company. The Cutler Hammer Company had, in 1901, been involved in the construction of the Panama Canal. We can perhaps speculate that this involvement may have made them particularly amenable to working with the apparently Bolivian Ralfero. Mamie White would later tell the Milwaukee Journal, quote, The reason she pretended to be South American was because the people of that country have soft ways and effeminate mannerisms, and she thought that this was the best way to get along. Our dark skins helped that story. Whether or not this is a real quote from Mamie is debatable, but it does provide further insight into how the construction of various racial categories, South American, Black, and White, enabled people like Ralph and Mamie to mobilize them in creative ways to define certain levels of discrimination. We can see just how far this act of racial and gender passing took Ralph and Mamie out of blackness by noting that they soon moved into the city's 10th ward, a neighborhood that was largely comprised of American-born whites. By all accounts, they lived happily here for many years. However, by the mid-1910s, Ralph began staying out at night. He drank and grew distant from Mamie, Eventually, Ralph became infatuated with a young girl named Dorothy Kleinowski. 
the daughter of Polish immigrants, Dorothy was a blue-eyed, blonde-haired woman who would now obviously be considered white. At the time, however, Eastern Europeans were not considered to be part of the same category as white Americans. This is only significant in that it is perhaps why Ralph, himself a racial outsider as an apparently Spanish South American, and the Polish girl Dorothy were able to have an affair and even get married without causing racist uproar in Milwaukee. On March 24, 1914, they did just that. Plain gold ring on his finger he wore It was where everyone could see He belonged to someone but not me On his hand was a plain The newlyweds, Ralph and Dorothy, moved into 517 Cedar Avenue, leaving Mamie behind. This would turn out to be Ralph's fatal mistake. The spurned Mamie marched right into the police station and reported Ralph's assigned sex. Mamie told the police that their relationship had been chased, driven entirely by economic concerns rather than romantic or sexual ones. Mark Saunders, Milwaukee police captain, was quoted in the Milwaukee Journal saying, quote, No woman ever came into my office who could use better English or was apparently more refined than Mrs. Carwinio, and from my investigation, I believe that they are stating the truth when they say the only reason they set upon this adventure was an economical one. They are not morally perverted in any way. This version of events clearly stretches the imagination. If Ralph became a man and a husband, as well as South American and white, just to get better jobs, why then did he choose to marry a second woman? And if Mamie White had been in the marriage solely for the same reasons, why would she be so hurt and offended as to turn to the police when Ralph left her for Dorothy? One could argue that Mamie had been economically dependent upon Ralph and this was her motivation for turning him into the police. But though the local press favored this explanation, the worldlier and far more sensational coverage in the national press found it hard to believe. Ralph's arrest for masquerading as a man occurred as newspapers were running continual coverage on the Mexican Revolution and, specifically, the threat posed to white women by Mexican men. National papers grabbed hold of and elaborated upon his case. They took care to distance Dorothy Kleinowski from her Polish origins, emphasizing her whiteness by referring to her as, quote, the little blonde girl in contrast to the dark-skinned, dark-haired Curwinio. While the local press noted that Dorothy was neither surprised nor upset by the supposed revelation of her new husband's assigned sex, the national press painted Dorothy as a helpless white victim of the Latino foreigner. A column written by Ida McLon Gibson dubiously quoted her as saying, quote, 
My heart was almost broken when I found out that Ralph was really a woman. He was bigger to me than any man could be, she went on through tears. He did not ask anything of me, only to be happy. I love him. The same column portrayed Ralph as a heartless, vain creature who felt no remorse for the supposed shame he brought on to the little blonde girl. Intriguingly, this rush of media attention put Mamie White onto the defensive when it was further revealed that not only was Ralph assigned female at birth, he was also not South American. Mamie took to the papers to try to explain their shared act of racial passing by claiming that Kerwinio was half Potawatomi Cherokee on his mother's side, thus making him not quite black. Of herself, Mamie explained that she was part Indian. This allowed some of the press to reframe the two Kerwinios from sexual deviants to cultural outsiders. It was widely known that indigenous cultures treated gender and sexuality different than European cultures did, and this was believed to be a changeable factor, whereas the perceived iniquities of African Americans were viewed as inborn. By becoming native, the local press could argue that the Kerwinios could be rehabilitated into regular citizens, i.e. white citizens. Further incensing the national papers was the fact that Ralph had managed to marry Dorothy under the newly enacted eugenic marriage law. Fears among the white American ruling class that the increasing levels of immigration were promoting miscegenation and thus to blame for rising crime rates, venereal diseases, and a whole host of other social ills thought to originate in the bodies of foreigners had driven lawmakers in the 1910 to begin creating eugenics-based marriage laws. Wisconsin state legislature had passed the marriage certification law in the summer of 1913. This law made it mandatory that men wanting marriage licenses had to undergo physical examination for venereal disease before such a license could be granted. This would allow doctors to stop not only the spread of venereal disease, it was argued, but also the spread of inherited diseases, mental illness, disabilities, and racial miscegenation. In short, it would give the state the power to ethnically cleanse the populace. The logic behind the law, that men needed to be physically fit in order to enter into marriages, enjoyed widespread agreement. However, Wisconsin's medical community objected on the grounds that the law left it vague which tests needed to be conducted and that the $3 fee it stipulated was not enough to cover what they believed were the minimum number of tests required to determine such physical fitness. Because of this, though it had passed into law, the eugenic marriage law, as it was called popularly, continued to be the subject of public debate. National papers discovered that Ralph had managed to pass medical certification prior to his marriage to Dorothy, and use this to attack and undermine the poorly thought-out eugenic legislation. Headlines like the Washington Post's Eugenic Law Absurd or Eugenic License to Girl as Man Ridicules Law, which ran in Joseph Pulitzer's papers, 
took aim at the case as part of their broader critiques of the eugenics laws as not being strict enough. The papers argued in veiled terms that blood tests for venereal disease were not enough to stop the spread of homosexuality, as in the case of Carinio, writing that, quote, the eugenic law may work better for future generations if it was amended to give the police an opportunity to decide whether or not the groom is a he or a she. You might be asking yourself, why on earth would Ralph Carinio dare to get married so shortly after the passage of eugenic marriage law that he knew would make him undergo at least a cursory medical examination and blood test, which may have revealed his assigned sex? Emily Skidmore insightfully argues that marriage licenses were one of the only available means by which trans men could legally assert their male identity. Changing birth certificates was decades away from even being imaginable. But at the turn of the 20th century, identity document standards were lax, and obtaining a marriage license could be done without much hassle for men who passed. The marriage license could then be used as a form of identification and leveraged in a variety of other situations. Skidmore suggests that this may have been at least part of the motivation for Ralph to legally marry Dorothy after spending so many years in what amounted to a common-law marriage with Mamie White. While the national press continued their sensational and increasingly less factual coverage of Carinio's case, the local press noted that Ralph's trial moved forward in Wisconsin. During the trial, many of his friends, neighbors, and co-workers presumably all white and straight, spoke on his behalf. They assured the court of Ralph's good character and upstanding reputation as a hard worker. It's somewhat incredible to believe that a black trans man would be able to find such strong support among white straight people in the 1910s, an era in which lynchings of black men often accused of interracial relationships were common. But this is perhaps related to the continued ambiguity of Ralph's race. Was he black? Was he Spanish? Was he indigenous? All of the above? The testimonies alongside Ralph's own in which he continued to plead that his masquerade had been motivated purely by economic reasons proved to be enough for Judge Page who dropped all charges against Carinio. Ralph was ordered to go back to wearing women's clothing. Dorothy is quoted as saying, I am determined to stand by him and be his chum, even if I couldn't be his wife. It is here that Ralph Carinio drops from the historical record. What became of Ralph, Mamie, and Dorothy is unknown. Perhaps Ralph went back to wearing women's clothing and using the name Cora Anderson. Given that other trans men in this period, also covered in Emily Skidmore's excellent book, did not go back to women's clothing, but often moved to a new city and resumed life as men, it seems unlikely that Ralph would detransition permanently. 
We Can Only Wonder. Ralph Carinio and his two wives illuminate the slipperiness of both gender and racial passing in early 20th century America, as well as the widespread eugenics movement and its influence on public policy and opinion during that period. Though Ralph may not have identified as American during parts of his life, his story sits at the heart of the many cultural struggles the United States was undergoing during the 1910s. Black, indigenous, Bolivian, man or woman, Ralph Kerwinio sat at the crux of what it meant to be American. Thanks for listening to this episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is now recorded in London, England. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. And if you'd like to contribute to the making of future episodes, please consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com OFTV. Patrons who donate $5 or more per month get access to special bonus mini-episodes each month, as well as the archive of all previous bonus episodes. You can also tweet at me at Morgan M. Page on Twitter. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night.